is a beautiful 70 degree springish day here. It's still technically winter, but it is. it feels like spring here. It's 70 degrees. Guys, this is the warmest it's been here uh, so far. And coming out of that really cold weather slump that we were in, I mean, it was like negative 10 some days. It feels really good. So uh, we're, we're grateful to have a beautiful day. I actually uh, had my my wife and, 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 and our kids, we, we met up for lunch. And uh, I was coming back from the office at the church, and uh, they were kind of wanting to get out. So I just said, hey, let's meet. And so we met for lunch, and then and then after lunch, I I took them over to a quarry. There's a quarry that is I don't know probably a, a whole ten minutes away from our house, and our our two boys love dump trucks and heavy equipment. And so uh, there are these massive you know uh, rock haulers in this quarry. These these gigantic dump trucks, uh, ultra class haul trucks in this quarry and they're driving back and forth. And the cool thing about it is you, you actually get to stand on top of uh, this kind of culvert that they drive through. So they drive underneath you, these massive trucks full of just tons and tons of rocks. And um, I think they can hold up to like an equivalent of, of like 20 elephants or something like that in terms of weight. And uh, so they drive underneath you. And when they drive underneath you, you can just feel the the rumble because of all the weight uh, under there. And so took the boys to see that you can, you can, they drive right, under, right underneath you super close. And then, uh, uh, and then we came back here and uh, I got some work done and, and here I sit. And I want to talk about a, uh, an interesting, something that's interesting. Uh, this, this question is a question that needs to be kind of brought more out into the light um, because as, as usual we get into the habit of making assumptions uh, based on where we went to school or how we grew up or, or based on what our, our, our childhood pastor said or whatever and we make assumptions on you know uh, certain things uh, I know I know one of the major assumptions often made is that God doesn't really care about how we worship. You know, we can just worship however we want, and as long as the Scripture doesn't forbid it uh, with a with a natural or positive commandment or moral or positive commandment, then we can just do whatever we want. Um, so, so that's kind of like a a, a common assumption. That's a, that's an example of one that that we often make. Um, the other assumption is that is that the Bible speaks in a certain way. Uh, and that it speaks primarily in terms of the authorial intent of the human author. And I think that's a bad assumption. Uh, it's a bad assumption on the grounds of what Scripture teaches us. So, like, for example, you think about uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. You know, these are God-breathed words. Uh, the author and the authorial intent needs to be understood in terms of, of God's intent. Uh, primarily, rather than the human authorial in, in, intent. Okay, it's it's not wrong to consider obviously the the authorial intent of the of the human authors. In fact, it's very helpful. Uh, but it's not the linchpin of deriving meaning from the text. And you know, I always throw out an example. You know, when someone has, when I'm speaking to someone, uh, and and we're talking about biblical interpretive methodology, otherwise known as hermeneutics, 
and 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 you know maybe they hold to a a a a, a historical grammatical hermeneutical method uh, or an overcommitment to that method, um, and and so you know they they're not able to, for example, go to the Old Testament. And interpret certain texts that are or should be immediately applied to a historical person living back then. They can't read those texts as as, as applying in any way to Christ. Um, you know, and and so there, what what ends up happening is because they can't go beyond the immediate or or literal sense of the words themselves. Um, there are a lot of conflicting things that end up coming up in the scriptures, uh, things that are written in the New Testament, for example, that they do not have the categories to explain. Um, and, and one of the examples that I go to all the time is Hebrews 1.5. And in Hebrews 1.5, you have a quotation from Psalm 2, but in the second half, you have a quotation from 2 Samuel uh, 7.14. And... What happens in Hebrews 1.5 is the author of Hebrews quotes directly from 2 Samuel 7.14, which is a text that has an immediate meaning or an immediate sense directed towards Solomon. And then he applies that text to Christ. And you can look at you can look at different commentators, uh, you know, pre-enlightenment commentators. You know Matthew Henry, uh, John Calvin, uh, uh, people like uh, Benjamin Keach or John Gill, and they'll and they'll say things like, "Well, this is obvious." You know, obviously, the author of Hebrews one five is taking Second Samuel seven fourteen and applying it to Christ. Post Enlightenment, some scholarship influenced by a higher critical, uh, by a higher by higher critical assumptions, I, I believe started to say that texts like that were 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 actually not being quoted from places like 2 Samuel 7:14 they were coming from some source that we do that, that's no longer extant or it was like an oral tradition or something like that and so it says uh on the surface it says the exact same thing as 2 Samuel 7:14 but it, it there the authorial intent uh was different Okay, and, and this happens actually. This is also an opinion that has um, relationship to Matthew two fifteen. Matthew two fifteen uh, takes what scholars have, in the majority, agreed is Hosea eleven one. Well, there is obviously some people who see that as a as an exegetical or hermeneutical problem, because again, they put all of the emphasis on the human authorial intent. Um, and so it's a problem because, well, Hosea 11.1 1 is about Israel, the nation Israel. And because they cannot move beyond the literal sense of the text to a more deeper meaning, they have to say, well, ele- Hosea 11.1 1 can never be applied to Christ because it's, a, it's about Israel. If we're, if we're using a literal hermeneutic, they might say, that's, what it's, that's how it's got to be. We can't take Hosea 11.1 1 and apply it to Jesus. And the apostles didn't do that either because they were good dispensationalists and had a historical grammatical hermeneutic. So they didn't do that either. 
Um, and uh, and so that's not a quote from Hosea 11.1. 1. That's just a, that Matthew 2.15 is a quote from an unknown source. It's no longer extant, or it was a, a verbal tradition, an oral tradition, um, that is applied to the Messiah, even though it says substantially the same thing. And of course, there are all these you know, well, he's not quoting directly from Hosea 11.1 1, because there's something grammatically different happening in Matthew 2, uh, verse 15, than there is in Hosea 11.1. 1. Well, you can say that, uh, but you also have to remember that Matthew wrote in the Greek. Hosea 11.1 1 was written in the Hebrew, and so there's a disconnect there. Not only that, but uh, if he was going from the Septuagint and then wanted to, from memory, correct the Septuagint's rendering, then, of course, it would be hard to match uh, match, you know, word for word, exactly what the apostles doing there in in, in Matthew, uh, in Matthew two fifteen. But it's a, it's it's a quotation, in substance from Hosea eleven one. There there's 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 been no question about that until very recent times. Um, so the the question is that we have to we have to step back and ask is, well. Then, if if it's if we're not strapped to the literal sense, you know, if 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 we can press beyond the literal meaning and go deeper to what you know the Puritans would call a, a fuller sense, the Scholastics would call a sensus plenarar. Uh, how how do we do that? Or to ask it another way, how does the Scripture speak to us? And I think the one of the things that we find in the New Testament is an explanation of how the Scripture speaks to us through the interpretive example of the apostles. All right, so like, um, I always go to Hebrews 1.5 because that's a really clear, explicit example of the apostles, uh, or, or if you think Paul wrote it, that's fine, if not, whatever. But there's this apostolic hermeneutical principle being employed in Hebrews 1.5 where the author feels like he has license to pull a text out of Second Samuel that's about Solomon and then just go and apply it to Christ. And of course, you know, there are, there are, there are some people who try to solve this problem by saying, well, this is a hermeneutic that is exclusive to the apostles because they were under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And if you're going to say that, well, then you have to do away with the concursus theory of inspiration and you just have to say, well, that God took possession of them at certain times and spoke through them in a very unique fashion. They they couldn't do anything about it. It was just kind of like God was possessing them and making them write, you know, exactly what he wanted them to write through a mechanistic kind of uh, special providence. Whereas a concursus theory would say, well, God's actually just making use of, of, uh, of their uh, geographical, their cultural, their, uh, their personal uh, identities. Uh, and he's he's concurring with all of that to uh, to have inscripturated that which exactly that which he determined to have inscripturated. Okay, so which means so if you go with the concursus theory of inspiration, that when 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 someone like the author of Hebrews pulls from Second Samuel seven fourteen and and applies it and applies it to Christ and not Solomon, right? When when that happens, he's He's doing that not because he's being possessed by the Holy Spirit, um, but because he would have done that even in his private Bible reading. And if he were to teach a, a hermeneutical class or a class on hermeneutics, uh, 
he would teach that hermeneutical license to his students because that's just part of who he is. That's part of how he interprets the text, right? It's not a dictational theory thing uh, of inspiration. God's using his personalities, using his desires, his interests, and all of that to inspire exactly what he wants to be written down on the page. You see this in other places. It's not just Hebrews 1.5, all right? It's uh, uh, Acts 15, during the Jerusalem Council, uh, in order to make the inclusion of the Gentiles, I guess, more palatable to the contemporary audience or the surroundings of the Jerusalem Council, uh, James quotes, he quotes from Amos. He quotes from Amos 9, and it's a quotation of Amos 9, verse 11 and verse 12. Now, one of the things that I have to note here is that if you're one of those guys, you're looking in the original languages, which is good and encouraged, um, you're seeing that Amos 12, uh, actually Amos 9, as it appears in Acts 15, or as James quotes it in Acts 15, does not appear as it might read in your Old Testaments. And the reason for that is because James is, is quoting it from the Septuagint. And there is uh, some nuances in the Greek uh, which disrupt, uh, not in a way that causes it to lose the substance of, of its actual meaning and its integrity, but it disrupts the actual flow of translation from the Hebrew. So it's, it's not the case that you can just transliterate the Greek out of the Hebrew. It, it, it doesn't work that way. And so... He quotes, it, he quotes it from the, the Septuagint. It says substantially the same thing as the Hebrew does. So if you notice the, the word change, that's what's going on. If you pick up a Septuagint and go to Amos 9 and look at the Greek and compare it to the Greek that's being employed in Acts 15, you'll see that it's essentially the same, all right? With some nuance, obviously, to account for uh, that transition from classical Greek to, to Koine Greek being used in the first century. And so they're, they're, uh, they're, what, what's happening in Acts 15 is he's saying this is this Gentile inclusion that we're having trouble with here. All right, this is one of the whole reasons for uh, the Jerusalem uh, Council. It was because of this struggle between Jew and Gentile and how to understand the dynamics between those two different ethnic and sociological identities. Um, this Gentile inclusion has been uh, prophesied in the scriptures, and the prophets agree with this. They are of one mind with this event, all right? Uh, and, and that's what he says in verse 15, Acts 15, 15. Uh, actually, let's step back from that and look at Acts 15, 13. And James says, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared, he means Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. All right. Uh, and then he says, and, and in verse 15 now, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes Amos 9, verse 11 and verse 12. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. 
so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Now, if you're stuck to a literal interpretive method of the Bible alone, and you cannot go beyond that, and you've artificially confined yourself to that hermeneutical supposition, then when you go back to Amos 9, you will by no means be able to legitimately say that Amos 9 has been fulfilled, because it's it's talking about the rebuilding of this tabernacle of David, which has been taken down, it's fallen down. Uh, this rebuilding of the ruins, this setting up this tabernacle once more. Um, and and this has happened, all right? And th- this has been fulfilled. And one of the reasons you have to say it's been fulfilled is because it's, if you look at it, and I'm looking at the text in Acts 15 now, look at verse 16. Verse 16 is causal of verse 17. So after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that, all right, so that, or in order that, hupos, in order that the rest of mankind, the Gentiles, may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things, all right, and if you're not allowing, so say you go back to, you go back to Amos nine, and you're looking at Amos nine, and you say I could never because you know I'm interpreting the scriptures, the scriptures literally, by which you mean you cannot go beyond the surface sense of the terms. You're stuck to the, uh, I guess the initial sense of the words alone, that we'd call it the historical sense then you cannot get what James gets out of it in Acts 15, all right? Um, Now, you won't be able to answer the question, and the other thing, yeah, this is the other thing, you won't be able to answer the question as to whether or not the apostle was interpreting the scriptures correctly. Uh, Was James interpreting the scriptures correctly or not? All right, so if you go to Acts 9, or Amos 9, sorry, Amos 9, 11 and 12, um, if you look at 11, on that day, I will raise up, you know, obviously it's picking up from some other pretext, and that's verses 1 through 10. If you look at verses 9 and 10, you see, for surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. That has been fulfilled, right? And the reason that's been fulfilled is because is because verse 11 has commenced, which says, On that day, or after this, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That's causal, then of verse 12, again in Amos 9, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. So, if, you're, if you can't press beyond 
just the literal or historical sense of the terms in Amos 9, 10, 11, 12, then you may get a view of prophecy like someone like the dispensationalist does. That all of its future, without qualification, except, of course, that which the New Testament explicitly says, this has come to pass. But if you look but if you look in in Acts 15, if you look in Acts 15, James is using the Old Testament, specifically as it's revealed in Amos 9, to confirm the events that are transpiring, which has led to the need of the Jerusalem Council. All right, so again, this all goes back to how how do we how do the scriptures speak to us? What is the Bible? Is it, is it a, a compilation of books written by men, or is it more than that? And if it's more than that, then, then our hermeneutics must reflect that. All right, we cannot, we cannot say, well, uh, these books were written by men. We have to find Amos's intent. We have to find Isaiah's intent and all of this. And then say, oh, but yeah, yeah, we also, we also affirm that they're divinely inspired. Right, and it's just divine inspiration is kind of like either a, a footnote or 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 a, a superstructure that's built on top of the foundation. The foundation being the historical sense and the authorial intent of the creature. No, the foundation is God, right, and God's intent in revealing these things to us. It's like when Paul, when he's talking about um, uh, treading out the grain, the the oxen treading out the grain. Let me actually find it, um, because this just came to mind. Uh, when you when you look at Paul and you you see in First Corinthians, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not. It's First Corinthians nine nine. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Well, if you're only reading the text in um, in Deuteronomy twenty five according to its literal sense, and it's not allowed to go any deeper than that, then you would have to say, yes, it's only oxen God is concerned about. Because there, there, there's nothing in the immediate context there in Deuteronomy 25 to suggest it's talking about anything deeper than that. But Paul says, verse 10, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? The, that's a rhetorical question. The implied answer is yes. He says, for our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. So Paul is unfolding the fuller sense of Deuteronomy 25, whereas if you are only looking at the surface meaning of the terms in Deuteronomy 25, you're like, well, it's just talk, you know, God wants the people to take care of their oxen, right? Uh, Paul's saying, no, everything in the Old Testament was written for us, Romans 15, 4. And because of that assumption, it must it must be applicable to us. It must mean something to us. There must be some reason beyond just the welfare of oxen and farm animals that that was written in Deuteronomy 25. Right. Anyway, guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump off here. It's been great. Uh, I, uh, I I love the conversation uh, that that uh, that asks that, that that starts with the question: How does Scripture speak to us? It's such a it's such a big discussion, and it's one that's not happening enough. It's one we need to pick up, kind of rekindle, 
and and get into once more. So y'all have a good rest of your day. I hope it's as beautiful at, in your neck of the woods as it is in mine. 